This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. music for GE today. Man, they are really getting hit hard as a well-known whistleblower on the street coming out and making all sorts of accusations. GE responding, let's break it down. Chat can't chat. Of course, I mess it up. Kat Chiglinski, sorry, finance reporter for Bloomberg. I was trying so hard, Kat, to get it right, no and I barely did it. Uh, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's got the story. GE, they are really um, getting hit today. Tell us what's going on. So Harry Markopoulos, made famous by the Bernie Madoff scheme because he called them out. Um, he released a report today saying that GE is underestimating their insurance reserves. And there's some issues tied to how they account for their Baker Hughes investment. Um, A, I think the report has shocked investors a little bit. You know, the insurance thing has been a real headache for them over the past two years or so. But knowing that the headache could continue and potentially might get a lot worse than you expect, I think always is going to spook people. Without getting too, too wonky about IFRS and GAAP, Basically, I think we know that GE had to write down some of those assets from Goodwill on their balance sheet, basically saying they weren't worth as much as they once thought. This, though, sounds different, almost as it were intentional or purposely misleading. Am I correct in thinking that? So with insurance, it's really hard. These long-term care policies were very expensive for a lot of companies, and everyone's book is different, right? So you might, if you're a Prudential or a MetLife, you might have a different characteristic of a population. You might have... Actuarial assumptions, right? You might have expected, you know, given them less benefits or, you know, than other companies. And so this says that GE is not keeping up with some of its peers. So if you were to benchmark it to Prudential Financial, they say... That would require GE to put up $18.5 billion more in reserves. And they say this new accounting standard would actually cause um, a lot more of a charge, non-cash charge, because they're going to have to right-size it coming up in the future. That won't be for a few years, but it's still important. And GE itself has warned that's going to be material. So one of the important things that many people probably realize is this is coming at a time where things aren't going great already for GE and Larry Culp, the relatively new CEO, has had his own set of challenges, sort of finding his voice and his role uh, in the job. You've got other short sellers coming out and essentially saying, I mean, I love this this guy you quote in your story, John Hempton over at Bronte Capital saying, GE, I'm quoting here, is a deeply problematic company, but this analysis he called Silly. So put this in the context of everything else that's going on at GE. Of course, Larry Culp has a lot on his hands. And to be honest, you know, um, the insurance stuff, some of this is not, you know, stuff that Culp did himself. You know, insurance is often a multi-decade thing. You can have a lot of um, ghosts in your closet that come out, you know, when you're least expecting it. Um, But it adds to the problems, right? You can't right-size a company if you're concerned about cash flow. And you can't right-size it if you don't know exactly what's going to come back to bite you later on. We should say Stan Druckmiller of Duquesne 
family office has just come out and says, I believe the CEO and he's going he's buying GE shares on the dip, basically. So you definitely are getting quite a bit of a push pull uh, between this. For their part, what is GE saying? G- so GE's fighting back. They're saying that they even uh, had their audit chair committee come out and say, listen, this is not really actually accurate. There's a lot of mistakes. And if he would have talked to the company, maybe he would have um, fixed it. You know, it's hard to tell, especially when you get into insurance accounting. It, it really depends on the company and its specific books. And unless you have a great look at it, it can be hard to tell. Although the state filings that he combed through, they're, they're a little more detailed and could give you a little more color on how each book is doing. I do think, you know, um, there is a point that, you know, GE obviously has insight that sometimes outside people don't have. So it'll be interesting to see sort of who uh, who ultimately proves correct in this. Well, and it does feel like the biggest single criticism of this is that this is a, what, 170-page report that Markopoulos put out, and he did not talk to GE all along the way. I mean, Larry Culp putting out a statement himself, and that seemed to be the gist of that is, look, this guy is saying all these different things. And he didn't even ask us what was going on. And there's a chance he can profit from it. Um, you know, they were saying he was working with a hedge fund on it. Um, and G points that out. They say you should consider the motivations in this report. And, um, you know, that's always sort of true of people working with short sellers or anything like that to take that into yeah, consideration. GE going as far as saying that this is, quoting here, market manipulation. And you wonder what would be the implications or the fallout of that. So if he has a short position, GE proves correct. I know you're not a legal expert, but is that allowed? Is that technically market manipulation? What would be the fallout from this? Yeah, I'm I'm no legal expert, so I would have to defer there. But I mean, it does raise concerns. You know, he's been right before, so I think that gives him more credence and people sort of look at it like, well, you know, you have a track record. Um, But then again, obviously, it's complex and we're dealing with a beast that it's hard to get your mind fully around. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and investors certainly paying attention to this, you know, as we've been talking about, the stock uh, has been hit pretty hard. It is down uh, about 12.2% now, not as low as it has been. It's been down as much as about 15.3%, a little over 15%. But, you know, it's trading now at under $8 and certainly people taking a close look at this. Kat Chiglinski is finance reporter for Bloomberg. get excited about a little Duran Duran leading into a segment, there's something wrong with you, Taylor Riggs. Uh, You're dancing. I can see it. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the food delivery business. Speaking of hungry, Andy Hargraves here with us, equity research analyst for KeyBank Capital Markets. He joins us on the phone from Portland. Andy, I've been so excited about this conversation, as has Taylor, because this is our daily lives. And it sounds like it's part of the daily lives of many, many people. And yet we're trying to get our arms around who the winners and losers are. Help us understand how you look at it. Well, you're right. It is becoming a a bigger part of a lot of people's daily lives. And that's a great opportunity in the space. Um, you know, the, the flip side of that is uh, it's a uh, tough business right now, right? It's highly competitive, lots of capital, um, and you got to find your way uh, through all that. So who is finding their way through all of that? Who's the uh, number one pick in your, in your opinion? Well, DoorDash has certainly gained uh, a ton of share, and in, in, in the U.S. at least, is, is 
um, leading uh, in terms of, of overall volume. Um, I think Uber Eats and DoorDash are probably pretty close. The numbers that we see would put Uber Eats a little bit above, uh, above excuse me, Grub. Uh, yeah, uh, so Uber, it'd go DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grub. Um, Grub makes the most money, but <laughs> I think that's uh, almost the most dangerous position to be in right now. Right, because it is. it feels like from a cost perspective, or certainly from a consumer cost perspective, it's a little bit of a, a race to the bottom here, which is not good for margins, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, it started off as a, as a lead gen kind of concept, right? We're just going to generate order volume, and you can do the delivery yourself as the restaurant. And then Uber and DoorDash came to it and said, no, this is a logistics business. And the margin structure of those two businesses is really different. So Grubhub is starting from this really high margin business and right. sort of getting sucked into uh, a delivery battle. Talk to me about the barriers to entry, because you said it's a really competitive business and yet it looks expensive. Why aren't the barriers of entry high enough where it's preventing the competitors from coming in and taking market share from Grubhub? Oh, venture capitalists have a lot of money uh, <laughs> and like to spend it. So, um, uh, you know, by traditional uh, metrics, yes, you would say the barriers to entry are high um, with the amount of money that, that companies have these days and are willing to spend on longer-term bets. Um, they, they became achievable. Uh, and DoorDash showed that, right, a billion and a half dollars uh, and very, very good execution has, has gotten them to number one from number four in a pretty short amount of time. So, Andy, you know, we look around New York City here and we see a lot of experimentation even beyond these now sort of quote unquote traditional delivery services that we're now so used to with restaurants trying to do it themselves using their own technology. We've got to dig in just down the street from us. We've heard about, you know, these ghost kitchens where folks are setting up just for delivery. How much uh, innovation, I guess, is happening sort of on the restaurant side and how much are the restaurants relying on these services to sort of take them to the next level? Yeah, it, it depends on the restaurant, um, but there is a ton of innovation going on right now, and it's actually a really sort of exciting space to be around because there's so much change going on in what has traditionally been a sort of staid and, and, and a consistent business. Um, I think it, the big change, obviously, is delivery, and if you think about the physical infrastructure to support and even the tech infrastructure to support uh, a restaurant focused on delivery, it is completely different than one that was focused on having people come to them and, right. and dine. And all of that has to change. And it will be a long process, but um, we're, we're starting to see it really pick up steam. Andy, after Grubhub's second quarter earnings, um, you say it's mostly in line with expectations. They're executing a solid performance. Walk me through the up or the downside that you see for the stock. Yeah, I mean, the upside, I think there, there's a couple things that would have to happen. One, uh, a stable market environment. You know, they have to have the overall food delivery market continue to grow and, and grow at a good pace. Um, the second would be sort of the competitors um, backing off a little bit, if you will, or certainly not increasing and their, their sales and marketing effort. Um, you know, if, if competition increases, the capital war is, is not in their favor. Um so, so those two things, if, if those happen, you know, then the company could perform well and, and get some of its valuation back. Um, for 
you know, the opposite <laughs> would drive the opposite. If the market slows, if Uber Eats kind of, which has actually been a little bit slumbery, I would say, the last nine months, if they yeah. step back on the gas um, from a marketing standpoint or get more aggressive in terms of take rates, um, then, then that could be, you know, a pretty bad combination for Grub. Great stuff. Really love talking about this issue, as you can tell. Andy Hargraves, Equity Research Analyst for KeyBank Capital Markets, looking after the food delivery industry, most notably Grub, the publicly traded uh, element in this discussion. The ticker is G-R-U-B. Andy Jones on the phone from Portland, Oregon. So mixed up. So mixed up, and Jason, really, so many mixed messages that were going on starting really all this morning at 5 a.m. when you have China coming out and saying that we violated an agreement uh, with our 10% tariffs, and then China coming out a few hours later and saying we want to, you know, continue to work with the U.S., be on the same page. So to help unconfuse me, fortunately, we have two great guests, Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor at Bloomberg, and Stefan Seelig, Managing Partner at Bridge Park Advisors, who's also former under Secretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce under the Obama administration. So thank you both. Sarah, first, can you sort of break down what happened today? So I, I love that song. It adds a bit of levity to to a situation that just seems to be getting way more serious. Today, we heard from China. They, um, not surprisingly, I think, said, you know, we are going to proceed with retaliation when the U.S. imposes this 10 percent tariff on, you know, the rest of our imports that are coming into the U.S. It's going to be staggered now between September and December. But, it, you know, the Trump administration is still escalating the tariffs. So, you know, China said, we're going to hit back. On the other hand, you know, we did hear from officials saying we would be able, you know, to meet the U.S. part of the way on a deal. But for the U.S., that's that's not quite good news to hear that from China. I know the markets probably got a little bit of lift from that, but the U.S. administration wants everything from China. They don't want to give give um, Beijing even even an ounce back. And so, you know, I, I really don't think that, that China saying that might have even been turning the screws on the Trump administration a little bit because we had Peter Navarro saying yesterday that the U.S. wouldn't right. meet them halfway. All right. So, Stefan Seelig, come on in here. I feel like another song we could have chosen to lead into this is Helter Skelter, because that is the feeling. And I think you agree that we've had here. It doesn't feel like much of a negotiation uh, at this point. You've been in these rooms. Help us understand what's happening or not happening. Uh, good afternoon, Jason. Uh, you know, Helter Skelter is quite right. Um, it is highly predictable, unpredictable, rather. Um, uh, so you saw the president, um, uh, as Sarah suggested, announcing the uh, increased tariffs to virtually now all the goods that China um, sends and then backing off uh, implementing some of those until December. You saw China not only threaten um, uh, countermeasures, but let the uh, RMB cross that symbolic seven RMB to the dollar level, implying that they might uh, weaponize their currency. And so you're seeing this kind of tit for tat. The problem with the negotiation fundamentally is we have a huge list of asks. We have asks around protection around intellectual property uh, and counterfeiting of goods. We have asks around market access. We have asks around uh, their state support of businesses over capacity and steel and aluminum and other industries. And fundamentally, because we have an open economy, they don't have very many asks. Their asks are quite simply, please take away the tariffs and please give us access to technology and don't impose um, this entity list restriction that you have on Huawei and others. 
And as a result of that, that imbalance makes a negotiation very difficult because there's very little that we can give them for all the guests that they may give to us. Stefan, talk to me if you were in the president's inner circle, if you were giving advice, what is the best way to negotiate with China to get them to really listen? Well, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fabulous um, question, Taylor. I would have said a couple of things. One is these issues are not just U.S. issues. These are issues for all Western economies and all market economies. So I wouldn't have gone it alone. I would have linked hands um, with our friends and allies and dealt with these uh, issues with China together um, and not um, mano a mano, part one. Part two, I think it was a huge mistake to withdraw from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because that would have created uh, real pressure on China to have to um, uh, do business with us. And thirdly, I would be a little bit more specific and realistic about what our asks are. So the president's and the administration's focus on our bilateral trade deficit um, is so misplaced and I think hard for uh, the other side to understand because it really has nothing to do with trade policies that I think they really don't know what to do to be able to um, uh, meet the requirements for a successful resolution here. And so, Sarah, take us inside your notebook and those of your reporters that are working with you. What's the next step here? What are we waiting to see, knowing that the next thing we may see could come from the president's Twitter account? Absolutely. Well, the the latest seems to be Trump sort of tying or at least suggesting he may tie some sort of trade deal to a resolution on the Hong Kong protests, right. which, of course, China uh, doesn't like. You know, it, it, it has said overnight we they do not want foreign interference in, in this domestic, what they see as domestic issue. So, you know, things just seem to get muddier and muddier as we as we plot along. And you really don't know the next move that Trump's going to make. You know, in some ways, I think probably Trump pointing out these protests is showing a, a challenge for China and it kind of puffs up Trump's chest. The U.S., you know, showing that they're in a stronger position. So in a way, it could be a negotiating strategy, not a, a direct point, but but a way to make the U.S. look a bit stronger than China. But, you know, at the same time, we've seen the helter skelter in the markets yesterday and, um, you know, the world looking to be in a bit of a weaker place. Trump's heading into reelection. So how much does he want to toy with China on this? Does he really just want to sail into his reelection with a strong economy and um, not mess up too much with the China trade negotiations? All right, Stefan, going to give you the last word here. From the corporate perspective, you were a banker once upon a time as well. You talk to CEOs all the time. How are they feeling about the state of things? It feels like we're hearing mixed messages there as well. Maybe it depends on the sector, but what's the general feel from the C-suite? Look, I think it is one of general uncertainty, Jason, um, which is going to be reflected in continued volatility in the equity markets like we've seen over the course of the last few trading sessions and is also going to curtail business invest business investment because planning in this environment is so complicated and hard because we've never lived through something like this before where the two world's largest economies are at at odds so there isn't isn't really a playbook and while um, Sarah is quite right um, that so far there has been a relatively um, limited impact um, on the global economy and the US economy and unemployment remains low and uh, our consumer uh, remains um, strong, eventually this will all catch up. And so I fear, given the complexity 
uh, of these issues and the difficulty in these negotiations, this is going to go on for some period of time. And while Sarah is quite right that she, she suggests that we might be in a relatively better position than China, yeah. let's not forget that President Xi does not come up for re-election right. uh, in, in uh, next that's a great point. We're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much. Stefan Seelig, managing partner of Bridge Park Advisors, also a former Undersecretary of Commerce in the Obama administration. Sarah McGregor leading all of our coverage around trade. She joined us from Los Angeles. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Taylor Riggs with you on a Thursday afternoon. This is Bloomberg. Well, this is one of my favorite stories in the magazine this week. It's about Baltimore and a massive project. It's a little bit of a, I dare say, sort of good news story from an economic perspective about a city that has had some ups and downs for sure. Tom Maloney. Maybe the hardest working man at Business Week this week. He is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. He wrote the story along with Heather Pearlberg. She's a private equity reporter for Bloomberg, but a longtime Baltimorean. What do you find down in Baltimore, Tom? Well, it's a site. It used to be called Sparrows Point. It was once the biggest steel mill in the world. Uh, built steel for Golden Gate Bridge, Empire State Building. Built ships that helped uh, the U.S. win World War One and World War Two. So it's a massive industrial site, fell on hard times um, sort of at the beginning of the 21st century, and it's recently been turned into a huge logistics center, and you've got tenants like Amazon, FedEx, uh, Gotham Greens, all kind of people moving down there. Well, and Heather, you know, what I like is it is a city story, it's a company story, but it's also a private equity story. So who was the private equity firm that sort of came in and swooped this place up for a cool $72 million? We're talking about Hillco Global. I wouldn't exactly call them a, a private equity firm, but they do sort of specialize in selling distressed assets. So this was right up their alley. And so you are a – do we call you Baltimoreans, Heather? We we do. We call okay. Baltimore. So you're a long-term Baltimorean. I've been trying to get that out and you know, now for a while. I finally did it. Uh, so what have you seen over the course of your time there? I mean, this was, this was a place, as Tom laid out, that was thriving for a long time and then wasn't. And so what does this mean for, for the city from the ground level? Well, it was a huge, huge employer for the city at one point. I mean, going back, you know, you'll meet people who live close to that area and their grandfathers, fathers all worked at the steel mill. It changed hands so many times that there was a lot of skepticism in the community that anyone would really figure out what to do with it or how to get it working again as a steel mill. And it seems like it's thriving as a logistics hub, but steel in some ways is never going to come back the way it, it was before. And Tom, I think another part of this story that I like is we hear a lot uh, with our current president about manufacturing and sort of bringing manufacturing back to America. Like Heather mentioned, this is a lot of logistics companies here who are coming in. So talk to me about the companies that are here uh, and what they're trying to do. Yeah, well, this is really a location that is thriving because of global trade uh, and global commerce. You know, you have Amazon, you have FedEx, um, Under Armour, a a lot of companies that are basically 
um, taking a lot of products that are manufactured overseas and being able to distribute them efficiently at a location like TradePoint Atlantic because it's you know it's a port, it's right on the interstate, it's got rail access and everything else. Um, so it it is interesting because it 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 used to be a huge manufacturing site uh, with manufacturing jobs, and now you have warehouses with with warehouse jobs and. Clearly, there is a difference in the quality of jobs, um, which, which is which is what's interesting about this site is really uh, it's kind of a microcosm of American economic history yeah. over the past thirty years. Yeah, well, and to that point, Heather, you know, what are the lessons that people are taking from this? Because as Tom rightly points out, and as you guys point out in your story, these are different types of jobs. You mentioned earlier there's you know some maybe you know not. Uh, understandable uh, skepticism uh, there in Baltimore about this. But what are the takeaways in terms of the sustainability, shall we say, of this effort? I think it's, uh, especially for the people who would consider these kinds of jobs, it seems to be, it's good enough for now. Yeah, You're not going to spend your life working at a place like Amazon, most likely. You'll use it as a stepping stone. Maybe it'll offer some kind of wonderful benefit like tuition reimbursement, but it doesn't seem to have the uh, longevity of uh, a place like a steel mill or or somewhere else where you would specialize in a trade and really grow up and, and live your career through that one specific place. Right. And just briefly, uh, Tom, only about 30 seconds left. Do we get the sense that, as you say, this is a national, maybe a global phenomenon? Other cities taking a look to see whether this might work for them too? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brownfield redevelopment is a a big deal in the U.S. Um, They estimate there's about a trillion dollars worth of real estate that could be redeveloped, but it it really takes a specific type of developer with expertise and with vision to take on a project of this kind of size. Right. It's a great story, a must-read for anyone who lives in a city, cares about them. Also such a fascinating look at sort of the future workforce as well as the investors who are betting on it. Great stuff. Tom Maloney is an editor for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Heather Pearlberg, PE expert, longtime Baltimorean, joining us on the phone from our D.C. Bureau. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Can't wait to get into this and get some help figuring out this market today and for the past few days. Tony Schur is Director of Research and a Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. He joins us on the phone from Seattle. Tony, great to have you with Taylor Riggs and myself. Thanks for having me. All right, so 
break this down for us because, as you probably just heard Bob Moon lay out, some pretty big swings across the board today. It looks like, I mean, we still got 11 minutes to go, so who knows what the heck is going to happen, but we seem to be moving into fairly okay green territory. The NASDAQ is barely holding on, but the Dow now up about six tenths of 1%, the SP up about two-tenths of 1%. What is moving the market back and forth so, so with so much gyration today? Well, today, of course, is just one day among a series of what's sure. going on uh, in, in August, right, and, 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 and prior to that, too. So, you know, this market has been in a place of what I would characterize as kind of suspended animation, right? And think back to 1999 and maybe even March 10th of 00 when – you know, everything had kind of gone right. Money had piled into the, the growth stocks, the growthiest of the growth stocks, the exciting sizzle kind of things. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, that, and, and then what could it then do for an encore? And the answer is it didn't have a great answer. And, and, and in some ways, there's a lot of parts of this market that, it, that are exactly like that. Now it's got a reason to go down. It's called global weakness, global growth uh, starting to wane particularly in China and some other areas, you know, exacerbated by fears of tariff uh, uh, wars and, and other things. But the, the answer is this market was begging to kind of go down at, at some point for some reason. It just didn't quite have one until more recently. Well, Tony, I would agree. I mean, I think we call this one of the most hated bull markets in history, right? The market felt so toppy that it was looking for a reason to come down. seems like at least in the last few days we found that. So talk to me about fair value because I've heard 2,900, 3,000 thrown around. So at a 28.52, does the market have room to run further from here? Uh, we don't have an S&P 500 price point, but I'll tell you that the S&P 500, especially at later stages of a growth market, you know, growth has beaten value for a durational period of time, the longest period of time, which it really ever has since you could go back and track it and done so by the biggest magnitude. So the S&P at extremes like that, it is a growth vehicle. Okay. So the the most egregious parts of the market from a valuation perspective, the S&P 500 owns that stuff in a more and more and more outsized way as time has gone on here. So you have to be extremely selective in terms of what you own in this market, and you would not want to own the overall average market uh, you know, in the S&P 500 in our strong opinion because of some of that egregiousness. And so let's talk about where you might go in a market like this, Tony. We love talking names. Uh, and so talk to me about media specifically. Some deal making has been happening there, but feels like there may be some value. Well, there's, there's tremendous value depending on where you look in yeah. media. You know, for example, one of our top names in media is Discovery Communications. You know, and we're amazed that you can sit here and you can buy that stock for something that trades at a, at a, at a I think it's 14% or so free cash flow yield. It, it just generates cash flow. They bought Scripps Networks Interactive about 15 months ago. And the combined uh, entity generates about $3 billion in free cash flow. It's, it's, just, it's a fantastic organization making very, very profitable content that has, you know, addicts to what it programs. And they don't have to go to Hollywood to go pay the highly paid actors and actresses to run the scripted television programming. It's basically reality TV. Yeah. 
uh, you know, that they, that they are showcasing. They don't really care where it gets watched, whether it's a cable TV program or whether it's some sort of other direct-to-consumer like a Hulu or a YouTube TV or a Sling. Um, we think, and it's extremely cheap. I mean, the bifurcated valuation between something like that and Netflix is, you know, astro- astronomical and kind of indicative of a lot of the other areas of the market where there's those extreme valuation disparities. Tony, another couple of stocks that you like are within the financials. Let's say Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, some of the big guys. Interestingly enough, typically these banks do not do well in a flattening yield curve environment or a flat yield curve environment. So do you like these banks on valuation or do you see a curve steepening? What do you like about the financials? Yeah, great question. Uh, You know, the the thing you say typically, lower rates and banks don't do as well. It's all about expectations, you know, in our view. And when it comes to looking at the banks, for example, there's just no expectations. It's kind of like what the market's viewing in general right now. The expectations of a continued economic expansion or solid time time period ahead is just so doubted. And when you're going to doubt that, you're going to doubt it right in the banks as well. And so the valuation is extremely attractive there. They've done very, very well for us, but they've yet to have the real animal spirits kick in of people demanding loans. And, and that's the main thing that they do that they can make a lot of money on is by lending, lending money. If you go look at velocity of money, it's on the floor. No one's taking risk right now in the way that they would normally. And if we get back to some level of normalization with risk-taking, which we think we will, these banks will have what has been a headwind to them become a tailwind, and they can make a lot more money than they're currently making. They've got the, the money to lend. And, uh, Tony, just real quick, about 30 seconds left. Some chip names uh, still attractive to you? Well, we think, there's, uh, we think Qualcomm's a very attractive story. That's kind of been recently tarnished by the trade wars and the the doubt as to whether they're going to make money or or be banned to sell into Huawei. That's created another opportunity for for entry into Qualcomm for those that are interested. We're involved. We think it's extremely attractive. All right. Great to catch up with you. Tony Tony Schur, excuse me, Director of Research and Portfolio and a Portfolio Manager, excuse me, at Smead Capital Management, joined us on the phone from Seattle, helping us make sense of what is going on in these markets right now. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.